Well, today <clears throat> we're finishing up uh, a six-week sermon series we've been doing. If you're just joining us, that's okay. We're going to fill you in with kind of where we've been. But we're, we've been doing this sermon series where we've been looking at Christianity and world religions. And um, today we come to the very final one, the biggest one in the world. We're going to talk about Christianity. It's only fair. We've looked at all the other ones that we're going to force ourselves to try to look at Christianity in one short sermon. So we'll, we'll see how that... We've already... Where we've been on this journey, and if you're just joining us today, again, all these are up on the web, so you could go catch them. But we started out talking about a theology of religions and why we as Christians would undertake such a sermon series. Then we looked, uh, did a compare and contrast looking at Buddhism, and then we looked at Judaism and Hinduism and Islam. And then today we're going to finish up, as I said, talking about Christianity. And I want to kind of follow the exact same pattern that we've done each week with one obvious change because we have to. But all these weeks, we've kind of looked at the history of each one. We've looked at some of the core beliefs, and then we've done a compare and contrast with Christianity. And obviously, that third one is going to change today, and we'll talk about that when we, when we get there. But we're first starting out, just stepping back for a minute and talking about the historical perspective on Christianity. It's going to, the start of it is going to overlap with what we've already looked at when we talked about Judaism, because basically the first 2,000 years or so is going to be exactly the same. And I won't go back into that with the detail we did back on that one when we talked about Judaism. But, but just thinking about the biggest brushstrokes that you can possibly imagine of looking at creation and then God's calling of Abraham some 2,000 years ago. And then ultimately the people being carried or going off to Egypt where they were for 400 years. And then the exodus when they really become a people. And then you get into all this covenant giving, covenant breaking, the giving of the law. All this kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's kind of what we talked about in, in a lot of detail during that time. And then in the intertestamentary period, we get a couple things brewing that we didn't really talk about last time. One is an, uh, a very palpable expectation that the Messiah was coming, that this Messiah, this, this figure would be coming. And then there's also a growing belief in this notion that there was a, some kind of resurrection, that people would, it wasn't just the end, that there would be some kind of resurrection taking place. All of that is, are things that are sort of the, the context that we get. And then we get Jesus appearing on the scene in the year 4 BC. They've later done some corrections, so we get the 4 BC on it. But, but Jesus appears, and we don't know a lot about his childhood, right? We hear at age 12 that he's found arguing with the theologians, so, and he's called rabbi, which is not just a title. People would have considered him to sort of be a, a master of scripture at the time. We get very early on that he's got this special relationship with God the Father. He calls him Abba, Daddy, kind of an um, approach he does. The people of Nazareth are, are just abuzz with excitement with this idea that they have a prophet coming from their village. They haven't had one in 400 years since when Malachi was there. And then you get John the Baptist, <clears throat> just looking at these big strokes, um, you get John the Baptist who's out in the wilderness, this wild man, we, we're going to talk about him when we get to Lent, but he's out there and he's telling everybody something new is about to happen and you need to get ready. And he's telling people, get ready and let's go back to the Jordan again and let's, let's go back through the, through the river because this promised land in another way is, is going to be coming. Get ready because this is going to happen. And then Jesus, he becomes famous and Jesus hears about him. And then Jesus goes out to where he is at the Jordan. And John is like, there he is. And they have this little um, 
moment where Jesus is like, I need to be baptized. And John's like, no, no, you, you know, you can't do that. But ultimately Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized. And in that he's counted with the sinners. And you have this chief moment where the, the Holy Spirit is seen visibly coming down upon him and sort of anointing him as, as this one. And so we get this whole notion that that's where things are going. And then immediately Jesus is led out into the desert where he encounters the thing that we all encounter, the struggle and the temptation of power. And you see him experience it on several different levels that he, he faces the temptation of the power um, from economics and from religious power and from politics. And Jesus comes out of that experience um, having stood his ground. And then he, he begins to say, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, the reason you may not have seen it is because you're looking in the wrong way. And ultimately, he's going to come back around and say, I'm the way. You need to look, you need to look here. This is the way where you need to look. And it's different than what people were expecting, right? He's going to begin to tell them that. <clears throat> and he's, <clears throat> excuse me, he's going <clears> to, <throat> I may have to get my water over here. He tells them that um, it's different than they expected. He tells them that the enemy is not the Roman Empire the way they think, but it's satanic powers. And he tells them that even Israel is bound up in what's happening. And that's the place where we get. And Jesus um, begins to preach with a certain authority that they have not seen before. And it's, uh, and it's scandalous. It's, it's scandalous what, what's taking place. And people are buzzed and the religious leaders don't know what to do. And they're getting all upset. And all these things are beginning to happen as Jesus does this. And then we go from there to Jerusalem, where Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem now, and he's going, to, he's going to head to the temple. And he's seeing where the people, the Pharisees there, have made people slaves using the law, using the Torah. And Jesus is going to come to a place where he's going to come to this one moment, this one time, where he's going to come to the temple on that day and say, enough. And he's going to throw down this final challenge overturning the tables, doing all that, saying this is not the way this is going to be. And he throws really this final challenge down to the, to the leaders there. Now, he had already thrown down a lot of different challenges to what was going on. He had already claimed to be the one who could forgive sins, which they were ready to kill him for blasphemy over. And now, again, as I say, he's in the temple um, doing all this. And Jesus then begins to do some of his most important teaching. He begins to tell, he goes into a series of teachings about different things, one of which is to talk about, the, to tell the story about, which will be familiar to many of you, but the story about um, the owner who had this vineyard in this, in this faraway land and how he's got a group of people that are keeping it and he sends his servants there to collect his, his dues and they beat him up and kill him. And he does this like two or three times and then finally he says, well, I'm going to send my only son to do it. And uh, they're certainly, they're not going to hurt him. And everybody knows, you know, with hindsight, what he's saying, what, what he's doing, what's going on. I mean, Jesus is making one final plea, one final call. And if you remember how that story goes, they do kill the son and then destruction heads their way. And so it's also a warning. And of course, this is what takes place. It all takes place, just like he tells in the story. And in fact, the temple is going to get destroyed um, to the ground in, in about the year 70 AD. So it all, this all takes place as things go along. And we get this idea that um, 
things, as I said before, are changing. The, the temple is no longer going to be the, the main place, Jesus says. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and be the, be the place of worship. That the Holy Spirit is going to be given. And that's part of, what, part of what we hold on to. And meanwhile, as we continue to look at this sort of historically, Jesus has worked on his succession plan, right, so to speak. He has these leaders that he's trained for three years who followed him that he's going to have in a place to, to begin to continue to spread the church, right? And he's trained them. And the night before he dies, he gives them a couple enormously important things. He, first of all, tells them, he brings them together in this Passover meal. And he eventually is going to break bread with them and talk about a new covenant. He's going to talk about, this is my body and this is my blood. And he's going to talk about this is something you should continue to do, kind of thing that we get from all of that. And Jesus ultimately is making a new covenant with his people. And to go back to kind of what we talked about when we did Judaism, he, covenants were oftentimes sealed with blood. And Jesus is saying, this is a new covenant and it's going to be sealed with my blood. We get all that stuff going on and he sets examples for them. There's, it's hard when you, when you get down to, to trying to do your... Christianity in one, in one quick sermon, but that takes us to Gethsemane and, and you have all these things that take place and Jesus dies, right? And I think it's hard for us where we are today to stop and just think for a moment, those who've been on this journey to this point, to think of how devastating it was at this point. Had Jesus not been resurrected, this is where it would have ended. Like beautiful teaching. I'll say more about that in a little bit, all this different stuff. But I think all these followers are floored. They'd heard him say these things, but they didn't really get it. And the wind has, they've been gut punched. And the only way that gets them off the, off the floor, so to speak, is the resurrection. And it's this moment. And what we realize when we talk about in that is that it's a victory for Jesus. It's not that he takes defeat and makes it into a victory. It is a victory. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. It's the plan. It's where it was, it was going. It's what it was meant to be. It's the victory and what is taking place in all of it. Jesus has overcome all the powers of evil. He's overcome all of this. His kingdom power can live in people's hearts. All the different things that can take place, we'll, we'll say more on it in a bit, um, has been opened up. And then as we continue to kind of think about and move on in this um, account of the history of Christianity, you think about the first um, five centuries are, of Christianity are considered the most vital. Because so much of the doctrine and the teaching and the um, practicalities of the church are being worked out during those five, first five centuries. And it's being done in a context of persecution, which means there's no fickle Christians around. There just aren't. It's a life or death thing for you to be a Christian. And so you've got all these kinds of things going on. And we get all the way um, up into the 400s when the canon of the Bible gets set. You know, and a lot of people particularly in the South, I think, sometimes forget the Bible did not just drop down from heaven, <laughs> that there was this process of God using the councils of the church and um, the churches, the, whole, the church during these first five centuries are facing lots of heresies. And we'll talk about that in just a second with what it means for councils, but it means, part of it means they wanted a definitive list of the books of the Bible. And so that eventually develops and um, love all of our fellow Christians, but to ignore those first 400 years is, and pretend it all starts with the Bible is a mistake. 
we would say, and along with every, all the Catholics in the world would say that as well. Um, but with that takes place. And then, as I said, we get all these heresies starting up. So the church has all these different councils that take place. We believe that the Holy Spirit directed the church in doing these. And they're called ecumenical councils. The whole body of Christians at the time come together, led by the Holy Spirit, to say, here are certain things. When we say the Nicene Creed each week, we are making a statement of faith that the early church put together before Scripture is even you know, finished, saying, here's the core beliefs over and against these heresies that are wanting to appear. So that's sometimes when you hear some of the language in there that's being driven. That's kind of what, what's going on with that. Throughout all this, um, I'm almost done with the history of it, but there were, of course, nothing goes completely smoothly. You get to about the 11th century, and there's the first split between the East and the West in the church, the Orthodox and the, and the Catholic sort of side of things. Then we get to uh, the Reformation in the 16th century, and then you begin to see lots more splits. And then you get to the 19th century and we get denominationalism and you see lots of splits, right? I mean, to the point that when we talk, we got to be fair. We're talking about some of our warts on Christianity. You get to this place and there's something like in the world today, there's something like 30,000 denominations. So this idea, we can talk about what it means, but you're, we're, we're not going to go through all 30,000 this morning. <laughs> we're just going to put that under the rug, but that's part of the warts that we deal with, you know? That there are all of these. But where we end up with all this today in the world, it is the largest group or world religion is Christianity. There are 2.3 billion Christians in the world. It's about a third of the world is, um, is Christian. That's a super quick sweep of a history of Christianity. I probably did it a little quicker than some of the others because I know we can keep coming back to it and we don't have to hold it, hold it there. Um, but I want to <clears throat> switch gears and pivot and like we've done on the other weeks, I want to talk about some of the main doctrines about Christianity. And there are lots of them that we could go into. We could, you know, talk about the Trinity and we could talk about the sacraments and creation and the incarnation and sanctification and justification. And we could kind of go down the list of all these big, big doctrines. But I want to, um, we don't have time for all of that. Um, I want to come back to sort of the most basic, basic thing I can and use that to explain a couple of the doctrines, some of the, the biggest of the big, and, and kind of go from there. And if you, as I was looking at this, if you go to the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church and look up Christianity, part of what it says is this. Um, it says, Christianity exists in a vast diversity of different styles and forms of organization, but all are agreed that the figure of Jesus is the disclosure of God and the means of human reconciliation with him. So it's all going to come back to Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And we've talked about what other religions do with this. We talked the other day, last week, about Islam saying the Quran is the ultimate revelation in the right language. We would say it's the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, go look at his teachings. If you want to know what God is like, go look at how Jesus lived. It all comes back um, to that. And when we start looking at that, then we begin to ask the question of what is the ultimate um, message of Jesus? And um, I want to um, kind of start with a silly way. I get lots of different little trade publications as a minister. One of the ones I get, um, this one group, they, they sell lots of legitimate stuff, stoles and chalices and different things, but they have a section of 
different kind of whatever kind of stuff. And anyway, I was looking at it the other day, and they had these, um, you could buy these little necklaces that, that had a nutshell on it. And you unscrew the nutshell, and it has a sheet of paper in it that has the gospel in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> like, so what, what passage are they going to put in there? Well, no surprise. It's the one we read a minute ago, John 3:16, 3, saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I thought about these two things about what it's saying about Jesus and about this nutshell. And I thought, I'm just going to focus in on that because that will unravel for us a lot of the main beliefs of Christianity. One of which is if you read that passage, you'll get that God is taking action to do something for people in the world. And why is he doing that? He's doing that because of the condition in which we find ourselves. I mean, he loves us. He's had community with us. We read about that in Genesis and all these other things. But he's going into the person of taking on the person of Christ, becoming incarnate because of the condition we find ourselves in. So the beginning question is to sort of ask what does Christianity say about the condition that we find ourselves? And to answer that, I would sort of talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the idea that um, when we talk about the good, Christianity would talk about the doctrine of creation and how we understand it. We would understand that God created us. And God created us good. And God created us in his image. And every single person on the planet is a brother and sister in our humanity. It has been made in God's image. That's part of what we hold and we believe. And we believe that God made us in his image. Um, theologians have some debate about that, but ultimately we have free will, maybe self-awareness. There begin things we can sort of begin to unpack on that. But ultimately, every single person has dignity because they're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what faith they hold, where they're born, what country they're in. We believe every single person has dignity because that that's the good. The bad, sadly, is part of that being made in God's image is that we had free will and we made some poor decisions along the way. And what we see in the history of humanity is violence begetting violence, getting worse and worse. And early on in the pages of scripture, um, we see Cain killing Abel and we see this pattern of violence that just continues and what its destruction does in the world. Places in scripture will talk about how this gets to where even creation itself is groaning for redemption because of all these, these patterns of things that have happened. And that, so that's really leads us to this place of this condition we find ourselves in and that we are, there's this tension between a God who's pure and holy and this uh, cycle of violence and sin and brokenness that has captured all of us at some level. And there's a tension there. And that's what C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, Oxford professor from last century, he would say, and does say in mere Christianity, Christianity has nothing to say to you until you get to that place. Until you see that condition, he would say Christianity doesn't really speak to you. This idea that understanding that condition you're in. And then we begin to talk about what God does. That as it says in that passage we read, that out of love, he sends his only begotten son. Out of love, he's coming to do something about it. And what we, he does is to enter into that tension, that gap between the holy God and, and his broken people and heals it, right? And there's, 
this takes us to the profound mystery of the cross. And I love the way Nikki Gumbel, um, the evangelical Anglican priest, talks about the cross is like a beautiful diamond that you can see beauty in it when you look at it from different angles. And so there are lots of different ways the church looks at what the cross does. Um, you know, there are lots of theories about what's happening on the cross and how it enters into this tension and what it does. I'm going to read, there, <clears throat> there's more than I can go into, but I want to read just one um, other passage to kind of go to the other end of the spectrum. <clears throat> Some of y'all know I'm a religious mutt. I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, but I went to a Roman Catholic high school a Baptist college, and a Methodist seminary. So um, I'm a little bit of a mutt, but I'm going to read a passage from uh, a, a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church who died a number of years ago, Avery Dulles. <clears throat> this is what he says about it. He says, the early church was able to make sense of the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus by reference to the Jewish conception of exp expiatory sacrifice. According to the Gospels, Jesus spoke of his body being given and his blood being poured out for many. Paul declares that Jesus has redeemed us through expiation by his blood in Romans 3. Just as Moses had sealed the first covenant by pouring out the blood of goats and bulls, Jesus instituted the new covenant by pouring out his own blood. There's lots of ways we, we see it, but whatever it is, what I would say is this mystery of the cross, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection enters into that gap. I want to say one more thing before we pivot to the final section of the sermon. A lot of people would end this right here. I mean, the presentation of the main beliefs right there. I pretty much went through a phase, a chapter of my life where I sort of lost my faith looking at the suffering in the world. And so I want to say one more thing. The Jewish teaching leading up to the time of Christ was that there were two ages. There was the present age and there was the age to come. Christians believe that we live in an in-between zone. We believe that there was this age, there's sort of this in-between age and the age to come. We believe that Jesus has already said the kingdom of God is at hand. We already see God's kingdom power happening. We already see these different things, the Holy Spirit in new ways, doing new things. But we don't see the fullness of God's glory. And I think for me, as a U2 fan, when they sing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think that's part of what we're talking about, that we, we find these things, we find God's richness in these things, but we don't find it in the fullness of the way we want it. We live in this in-between age. And that's the final thing I want to say, because it's, for those of you in the room who've experienced profound suffering, it's too much for me to leave it and pretend that it's, that it's all okay where we live, because there's still lots of brokenness that we face. The final part of these sermons we've done, we've, we've done a compare and contrast with Christianity. Obviously, it doesn't make sense for us to do that today. <clears throat> so what I'd like to do in the final section of today's sermon is give you some things to think about as I say a few things personally. I want to I say a few things about why I'm a Christian. And my hope and prayer is that this would give you some things um, to think about, right? The first of which is to think about the beauty of God. And if you go read, like, for example, a book like N.T. Wright's Simply Christian, he devotes a whole chapter to talking about the beauty of God and, and imagining what that is and seeing God in the beauty and the transcendence in gorgeous music, gorgeous art, gorgeous teachings, all kinds of different ways that we can see the beauty of God. One of my favorite authors, um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote um, The Brothers Karamazov that I love and what have you, he talks about this um, and he says this, if I can find it. 
He says, there is in the world only one figure of absolute beauty, Christ. That infinitely lovely figure is an infinite marvel. The idea of just pausing to think about the beauty of God. And I think we see it in lots of different ways, right? We see Jesus in his teaching. He takes on the hypocrites and the Pharisees and then responds with compassion and love for the woman caught in adultery and how he brings these things together. We think about God of the universe washing the feet of his disciples, the work that would have been done by the lowest servant, his command for us to love. I mean, there are all these different ways, the more we gaze and look at God, that we find his beauty if we're, opening, if we're open to seeing it. So I think that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing for me is to not underestimate the power of the martyrs. And, and this is the reason why. You know, these guys followed, these leaders are in the early church who followed Jesus for three years. They struggled. Their questions are not hidden. They're in, the, they're in the gospels. I mean, you can see them ask the questions, not getting the stuff. You can see them get floored really when Jesus dies and all this stuff. But basically they all go on to die as martyrs, all of them. They wouldn't do that for a hoax. I've always found a measure of comfort in that, that the idea that these folks, most all of them die as martyrs along the way. And I think that's sort of the second um, big point I would point out. The third sort of reason I'm a Christian is because of Jesus's teachings. I don't think we ever find anything more beautiful than his teachings, um, that we're to love our neighbor. I think we lose some of the edge of it, frankly. One of the, one of the problems with growing up in the church is you forget how radical the things are that Jesus is saying. When he's telling you to love even your enemies, love your neighbor as yourself, when he's telling you to treat others the way you want to be treated, when he's telling you um, he wants you to be free, he come with your burdens and let them go. And he's teaching in the parables. I mean, just to take in on a bad day, just go read the prodigal son again and see the embrace of the father as the broken child returns. I mean, all the different ways that we see his, his gorgeous teaching and his deep love and his call to us in that, right? Um, last week we did... St. Michael 101, and I haven't been to one of those in a while, um, but our rector, Chris Garato, is talking, and he, he made this comment. I've been thinking about it all week, but he told the people who attended, he said, he said, basically, Father Bob and Father Ken and Mary and I and all the people who preach, we all only have one sermon, and we, all we do is a bunch of riffs on it. <laughs> and he said, he said, the basic sermon is that you're profoundly loved by God, and he invites you to accept his love, mercy, and grace. And everything is a rift on that. And I've been kind of thinking about that. Yeah, that's kind of, that, I'm going to go with that. I think that's right. <laughs> that it's that. It's his beautiful teaching that way. And I think the, um, the next thing I would really point to is how we see um, God wants us to um, flourish. He wants his goodness within us. And I think the most beautiful people that I've ever encountered in life have been people who have given themselves fully to Christ in ways that are just really makes them attractive, makes them, I want to be like they want to be. I've not seen anything better than somebody sold out living the gospel full on their lives. And um, there have been phases in my life where that's carried me. I, I remember in middle school going through a little phase where I lost, I sort of was losing my faith. And I thought, well, you know, I've never been around people. The best people I know in the world are people who've taken this in deeply. And if I'm wrong about this, I'm going to get a, a system that's going to help me still flourish and have a better life. I believe that. Now, that was one thing that carried me through one day. But I do believe one of the reasons we believe is because we see it as something that makes you a better person 
And the glory of God, as one of the early bishops said, is to see a human fully alive, flourishing. And I think God's teaching leads us in that way. I'm going to rattle through these, real, these next ones real fast and we'll wind up. But I think the other reason I believe is because I love seeing God's power to make people new. Second Corinthians 5 talks about, Paul says, how we're new creatures in Christ. And to see somebody find that new life. And even within ourselves, like even after we become Christians, I think when we mess something up and we get, we get to go confess it and surrender it and receive God's forgiveness, there's a renewal. That transforming power of Christ is something that's phenomenal. I think, again, another thing is the power of hope beyond the grave. I love when we get to Easter and we talk about how the brokenness of this world and the death on the cross is not the, never the last word, that there's this life beyond the grave and, and how attractive and compelling that is. I think the next thing I would point to is our own experiences of Christ. Both through, with all the Christians through the ages who've talked about their ongoing relationship with Christ. We talked, um, Eric talked about Hinduism a number of weeks ago, and we talked about how they have a God that's not personal, is an impersonal God. Christians believe in a personal God that you can know and have a relationship with. And you have the testimony of people throughout the ages all saying they've had this connection with God that way. And I would say the same in God's spirit, that there's some mystical encounter with Christ that we have a sense that he's with us as he says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Um, so there's all these different ways. And the, the um, final thing that I would say ultimately is the way God calls you. He calls everybody in this room. He knows you by name and he calls you to go on this journey with him. And, um, and there's a sense that he's the one who's putting things in your path, always calling after you. If you want to read a, some, a beautiful poem on this, go read The Hound of Heaven. This idea that God is always pursuing you, always wanting you. His desire is for you to have communion with him and to walk with him. I'm going to end with uh, a quote. This is from uh, a bishop that I really love, the late Leslie Newbegin. And um, Leslie Newbegin was um, a missionary in India for 40 years. And he kind of got to be a missionary twice because when he retired after 40 years of being a missionary in India, he went back to his home country of England and found that it had completely changed. And so he talks about coming back and seeing a new culture and a new whatever. And so he sort of became a missionary in a new culture back in the UK when he, when he got there. So he's got a lot of these things on his mind. But he talks about um, this as one of the reasons he believes and how he, he views Christianity. He says, There is no non-committed point of view from which we can judge our different positions. If you seek to justify your faith in Jesus in conversation with people of other faiths by resting upon some grounds, some philosophical or historical grounds, you are in fact selling the past. In the end, we simply have to introduce people to Jesus and tell the story of what God has done. But even that's not the last word. I've often been pressed by my Hindu friends who ask, why do you insist on Jesus only? Why can't you recognize that Jesus is only one, perhaps even the greatest of all the great souls that have lived in the world? Why can't you accept that? At the end of the day, I can only say because God has called me in ways that I cannot fully understand. God has called me to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and I must bear my witness. So I'll fall back on the words of Jesus. You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you. That's why we're here. 
That is the ultimate ground for our confidence as we bear witness to Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for calling us, um, calling us in love to come and know you and to walk with you and to experience your grace, your mercy, and your renewal, and just to accept that. As we leave this sermon series, we ask again that you would help us to love our brothers and sisters in humanity with whatever faith they hold. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.